In another passage, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul applies the same spiritualizing principle to the annual Passover and days of unleavened bread. I quote, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Our Christian Passover is no longer a lamb slain annually, but a Savior slain once and for all, with the power to deliver us daily, not once a year. I quote, Let us therefore keep festival, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We note that the unleavened bread, which has replaced the literal unleavened bread, is the, quote, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These are the real spiritual issues, not the matter of cleaning out leaven from our cars and houses for one week in the year. Christians, says Paul, are to be, quote, keeping festival permanently. The translation in the King James Version is misleading, giving the impression that we are to keep the feast, i.e. literally. The comment at the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges is appropriate. I quote, Let us keep festival, a present progressive tense in Greek, referring to the perpetual feast the Christian Church keeps, not the feast, as in the King James Version, which would imply some particular festival. That's from the commentary on 1 Corinthians, written in 1899. The Mosaic system of law as a set of statutes has been replaced by the law of freedom in the spirit, summed up in the one commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, Galatians 5.14. In contrast, Paul refers to the Sinai covenant, at which time the Ten Commandments were given, as leading to bondage. The covenant which proceeds from Mount Sinai is bearing children who are slaves, Galatians 4, verse 24. In another passage, Paul describes the two tablets of stone, which were probably two copies of the Ten Commandments, as, quote, ministry of condemnation and death. That's a quotation from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 9 and 7. The Ten Commandments are definitely not God's final word to man. They were a provisional code of law to be replaced by a higher set of commandments today centering on the words of Jesus and the Apostles. We are to pay attention to, quote, the words which were spoken before by the Holy Prophets and the commandment of your Apostles appointed by the Lord and Saviour. 2 Peter 3, verse 2. These new covenant words are certainly not just a repeat of Moses. The Old Testament shadows of the new. Speaking of Old Testament events in the life of Israel, Paul says that, quote, these things were types for us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. These things happened to them typically, and they were written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. We have no difficulty seeing that the Israelites, quote, baptism in the cloud and the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, was a, quote, type replaced by Christian baptism in water and spirit. Similarly, their obligation to rest on the seventh day typified our rest in Christ. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. The seventh-day Sabbath was a shadow of an ongoing Christian rest. The writer to the Hebrews passes over the weekly Sabbath observed by Israel and sees the seventh-day rest of God at creation as a, quote, type or shadow of our rest from sin now and our final rest in the coming kingdom. That, quote, Sabbatism, not Sabbath day, but Sabbatism, remains for the people of God. Hebrews 4, verse 9. 
the Old Testament Sabbath day has passed away as a shadow of better things now come. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Since Christ has come, the true light of the Genesis creation is found in the face of Jesus Christ, who represents the new creation. I quote, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, in Genesis 1-3, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For long-standing Sabbath keepers, a necessary, quote, paradigm shift will involve some serious study and meditation on the theme of the shadow and body contrast of Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, and Hebrews 10, verse 1. Freedom from the law of Moses, the fulfillment of the law introduced by Jesus, and the spiritualizing of Old Testament shadows taught by Paul as Jesus' agent to the churches. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, should be read prayerfully and with full attention to each word, and no attempt should be made to avoid what Paul says. The Sabbath and holy days and new moons are a shadow. All three are a single shadow. As such, they are hardly a matter of life and death to believers. Jesus, speaking to fellow countrymen before his death, which inaugurated the new covenant, can still refer to some of the Ten Commandments, the fourth, by the way, is never cited, as a beginning point for faith, though it must be remembered that to his inner circle of disciples, Jesus goes beyond the letter of the law of the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Jesus also told some to offer sacrifices according to the law of Moses, Mark 1, Verse 44, but no one now would feel bound to follow that instruction. When Jesus told the Pharisees to tithe on separate herbs, he was speaking to men still under the law. Matthew 23, verse 23. To the Christians he spoke through his apostles, declaring that the whole sabbatical system, of which one part, the weekly Sabbath, appeared in the Ten Commandments, was a, quote, sketch or shadow of the present reality of Christ. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. It was at the cross that the new covenant was inaugurated. At that time, all of the new covenant words of Jesus, given as Matthew arranges them in five blocks of teaching, reminiscent of the Old Testament five books of the law, were ratified. Just as Moses had given the words of the Old Covenant and then solemnized the covenant with blood, Exodus 34, so Jesus follows this pattern for the New Covenant. Until the time of the cross, Jesus' followers continued to observe the Sabbath, Luke 23, verse 56, and no doubt circumcised their children. The situation is very different when Paul writes to the Colossians, to warn them against enforced Sabbath observance. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. For Paul, the Ten Commandments were now summarized in the higher law of love in the Spirit. Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. Let every man, Paul said, be persuaded in his own heart after careful study. Romans 14, verse 5. But let us not refuse the plain words of Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, which describe the status of the Sabbath and holy days as a single shadow. Should we insist on the weekly Sabbath, we must, to be consistent, insist also on the holy days and the new moons. They stand or fall together, as part of the whole sabbatical system given to Israel under the Old Covenant. Attempts to retranslate Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, 
are unsuccessful. For example, the proposal that Paul wishes the, quote, body of Christ, the church, to judge in the matter of days. This is a forced and unnatural translation. Paul's words are, don't let anyone in or out of the church take you to task on the issue of food and drink or annual, monthly, and weekly observances. It is misleading to maintain with the plain truth of 1991 in September that the annual Sabbaths are binding because they were instituted forever. Leviticus 23 verse 41, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Only a verse earlier, Israel was given an equally perpetual statute about not eating bread or roasted grain or new growth before offering the wave sheaf. Does anyone consider this to be binding today? What about the perpetual statute that those who come in contact with a dead person are to be unclean for seven days? Numbers 19, verses 14 to 21. Throughout the book of John, the feasts are described as Jewish. John 7, verse 2, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. John 6, verse 4, the Jewish Feast of Passover. John 5, verse 1, also the Jewish Feast of Passover. The preparation day for the Sabbath is called the Jewish Day of Preparation. John 19, verse 42. John thinks of the Sabbath as Jewish with the Jewish preparation day preceding it. These terms are scarcely compatible with the conviction that the Old Testament observances are now still binding on the Christian community. With Paul, John sees the days as a shadow of the much greater reality of Christ. The matter of the observance of days should be settled by each individual as he comes to learn true Christianity. People with scruples about food and days should be treated with patience until we all come to the unity of the Spirit. Romans 14, verses 1 to 6. I quote, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Romans 14, verse 5. Should anyone take it upon himself to interfere with this precious freedom granted to believers, he should consider that Sabbaths, holy days, and new moons were Old Testament types of new covenant realities in Christ. The danger of legalism, against which Paul warned so fiercely, is that it may promote a self-righteous justification on the basis of strict observance to Old Covenant law. He who receives a sign of the Old Testament covenant, that's to say physical circumcision, is, quote, under obligation to keep the whole law. Galatians 5, verse 3. This statement of Paul clearly implies that Christians are not bound by, quote, the whole law. Those who insist on law in the Old Testament sense as a code of regulations, quote, have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Galatians 5 verse 4. These are Paul's stern warnings to any who impose upon believers legal obligations which Jesus does not require of his followers. It is wise to remember that it was hostile Jews who persecuted Jesus, quote, because he was breaking the Sabbath. John 5 verse 18. Jesus' claim was that he had been working uninterruptedly with the full authority of his Father. John 5 verse 19. This is not to argue, however, that Jesus, during his ministry on earth, disregarded customary Sabbath observance. For Sunday resurrection, an appropriate reason for Christian gathering. The resurrection of Jesus occurred on Sunday, and on Sunday, though certainly not a Sabbath in the Old Testament sense, is an appropriate day for a weekly celebration of Christ rising from the dead. 
Jesus predicted that he would rise, quote, on the third day. In fact, the New Testament states 11 times that the resurrection was on, quote, the third day. Matthew 16, verse 21. Matthew 17, verse 23. Matthew 20, verse 19. Matthew 27, verse 64. Luke 9, verse 22. Luke 18, verse 33. And Luke 24, verses 7, 21. And 46, Acts 10, verse 40, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. These references to the, quote, third day most probably go back to the statement in Hosea 6, verse 2. Compare this with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, which speaks of Israel being raised up on the third day. Since Jesus represents Israel as its ideal leader, it would be appropriate for him to fulfill what is predicted of Israel, with a future raising of the nation of Israel still unfulfilled and awaiting the future. Similarly, according to Hosea 11 verse 1, Israel, the Son of God, was to be called out of Egypt. A fulfillment of this prophecy is found in the life of Jesus as representative of Israel, See Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus, so to speak, recapitulates the experience of Israel and he models what true Israel, compared with that Galatians 6.16, where the true Israel is the church, that's what the true Israel then ought to be as represented by Jesus. It is strange that students of the Bible, particularly Sabbath keepers, who want the resurrection to have occurred on Saturday, concentrate all their attention on one reference only in Matthew 12, verse 40, where Jesus spoke of being, quote, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As will be shown in a moment, this is a Hebrew idiom familiar to Matthew, which need not be taken, as a 20th century English speaker might understand it, as meaning exactly 72 hours. It is safer to find doctrines on the predominant evidence, and that evidence points to the resurrection on the third day. What is meant by the third day? In Luke 13, verse 32, Jesus says, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day... I reach my goal. This way of reckoning time has its roots in the Hebrew Old Testament. Quote, the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 10 and 11. When I have sounded out my father about this time, tomorrow, or the third day. 1 Samuel 20, verse 12. This method of calculating time forbids a Wednesday crucifixion and a Saturday resurrection. From Wednesday, Friday would be the third day. Today, Wednesday, tomorrow, Thursday, and the third day, Friday. But which day does Luke consider to be the third day? That is, the resurrection day. Luke 9, verse 22, Luke 18, verse 33, and Luke 24, verse 7. The answer is simple. It is Sunday. I quote, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Two of them were going that very day, that is, the first day of the week, to a village named Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 1 and 13. On that same Sunday, the disappointed disciples remark that, quote, today, Sunday, is the third day since these things happened. That's to say the crucifixion of verse 20. You read that quotation in Luke 24, verse 21. This third day, Sunday, 
is the day the disciples had expected the resurrection to happen based on Jesus' prediction that he would be raised on the third day. Jesus even reminds them of this after his resurrection. I quote, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Luke 24, verses 45 and 46. That third day is the very Sunday on which he appeared to them and the day when they were expecting the resurrection. Luke 24, verse 21. It is not hard to calculate that if Sunday is the third day, Friday is the day of the crucifixion. Sunday as the third day from Friday corresponds to Luke's way of reckoning in Luke 13, 32, above. And again, today, Friday, tomorrow, Saturday, and the third day, Sunday. Some have argued for a Thursday crucifixion, maintaining that Jewish rules governing the observance of the Passover and astronomical data make Thursday, April the 6th of AD 30, the most likely date. But Sunday, counting inclusively, is not the third day from Thursday. See Luke 24, verse 21. See also the clear sequence in Luke 23, verse 54, verse 56, and Luke 24, verse 1. Luke's account of the crucifixion and subsequent events is crystal clear. In Luke 23, verses 54 to Luke 24, verse 1, he records that it was the day of the preparation, which is the standard Greek term for Friday, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath day. They rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices which they had prepared. Imagine how extraordinarily confusing Luke would have been if he had intended to say that the crucifixion day was Wednesday. What he gives us is a clear sequence, one day following the next, the day of preparation, followed naturally by the Saturday Sabbath of the Ten Commandments, followed by the first day of the week. This evidence should not be avoided. The question as to whether Jesus and the disciples took the Passover or whether Jesus died on the Passover day is best resolved by taking as our fixed point the fact that according to Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus celebrated the Passover, as did the Jews, late on the 14th of Nisan. John did not contradict this fact. John agrees that the crucifixion took place on the next day, the 15th of Nisan. The crucifixion day, Friday, was the preparation for the important weekly Sabbath falling in Passover week. It was the preparation, or Friday, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, Saturday, for the day of that Sabbath, that Saturday, was a great day. John 19, verse 31. The meaning is that the weekly Sabbath, holy days are not called Sabbaths in the New Testament, was of special importance since it occurred within the Passover week. Note that John said in John 19, verse 14, it was the preparation of the Passover that is, the Passover festival, not for the Passover meal. The Jews refused to go into the praetorium for fear of becoming defiled because of the following celebration of Passover week, not because of a presumed Passover meal that evening. John 18, verse 28. They would have anyway been clean by the end of the day, which suggests that an evening meal is not in John's mind. Again, the Friday of the crucifixion, John called the preparation 
of the Passover week, John 19.14, not a preparation for the upcoming Passover meal, which had already taken place on the Thursday evening, as the other three Gospels tell us. For further information, the very useful Note 11 on page 279 of A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels, written in 1922, should be consulted. What then of the much-quoted three days and three nights of Matthew 12.40? Firstly, this is not an exact prediction. If one insists on taking the words literally, Jesus was in the grave three nights and three days, in that order, not three days and three nights. Secondly, it was customary for Jews to reckon any part of three days and nights as complete periods of day and night. Even in the Old Testament, we find a passage which does not require a period of three whole days to fulfill a reference to three days. In Genesis 42, verse 17, Joseph imprisoned his brothers for three days and released them on the third day before the completion of a full three days. Several passages in Jewish rabbinical literature confirm the idiomatic use of the expression three days and three nights. Rabbi Eliaza ben Azariah, around 100 AD, says, and I quote, a day and a night are an owner, that's a portion of time, and a portion of an owner is as the whole of it. You find that information in the Jerusalem Talmud under the section on the Shabbat. This important point is confirmed by the commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Midrash by Strack and Billebeck, available only in German. The following is a translation of their remarks on Matthew 12, verse 40, in the light of its Jewish background. I quote, In regard to the reckoning of three days, we must note that part of a day was considered to be a whole day. Rabbi Yishmael, around 135 A.D., treated a part of an ona, in this case 12 hours, as a whole ona, that's to say as a full 12 hours. Find that in Peshaim 4a. A part of a day counts as a whole day. The same is true of a part of a month or a year. End of quotation. Some have thought that two Sabbath days must have occurred in the crucifixion week. They argue that the women bought spices after a Sabbath Mark 16, 1, and before a Sabbath, Luke 23, verse 56. This detail should not be permitted to overthrow the strong evidence for a Friday crucifixion the third day before Sunday, as in Luke 24, verse 21. It may well be that two groups of women are distinguished in the account as also after the resurrection. We find that in John 20, verse 1, and compare with it Luke 24, verse 1. In Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56, there are, quote, many women, among whom Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, are singled out. The larger group is the many other women of Mark 15, verse 41. They may have prepared spices before the weekly Sabbath, Luke 23, verses 49 and 56, while the group of three waited until after the Sabbath, Mark 16, 1. Or, alternatively, spices may have been hastily bought before the Sabbath and supplemented by others bought after the Sabbath. Mark 16, verse 9, as a very early witness to the facts, places the resurrection on Sunday. Now, after he had risen, on the first day of the week, he appeared first to
to Mary Magdalene. The Saturday resurrection theory does not fit the facts of the New Testament. The Sunday resurrection gives point to a weekly celebration of that great event. This weekly celebration is reflected in the early Christians' meeting on the first day of the week. Thus, in Acts 20, verse 7, there's just such a gathering to break bread. The meeting here occurred on Sunday evening. Luke uses Roman reckoning to calculate days. In Acts 4, verse 3, it was evening, but the following morning is the next day. In Acts 20, verse 7, the believers met on Sunday evening, the evening of the first day of the week, and Paul departed at daybreak, verse 11, which was the next day, verse 7. The meeting in Acts 20 would have included a sermon and the Lord's Supper, which was celebrated, quote, when you come together as a church, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, or when you meet together, verse 20. The expression breaking the bread in Acts 20, verse 11, does not indicate just a common meal any more than it does in Acts 2, verse 42, where it's linked to other religious practices. I quote, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer. Indeed, as Paul said, the bread which we break in the Lord's Supper is a sharing in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. This Christian so-called communion is a fulfillment of the Old Covenant practice of eating the sacrifices. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 18 to 21, Leviticus 7, verse 6, which occurred more than just annually. It would be difficult, therefore, to maintain that the New Testament communion, or Lord's Supper, was celebrated only once a year. The Lord's Supper was celebrated, quote, when you come together as a church, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. The point needs to be emphasized that the Christian communion, or Eucharist, is not an annual celebration of the Passover. It reflects, of course, the events of the Passover, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, providing an atonement for our sins. But it reminds us, too, of the great event in Exodus Chapter 24, verses 7 to 11, where blood was sprinkled on the people as a sign of initiation into the covenant mediated through Moses. Christians are to participate in the new covenant mediated by Jesus. The communion represents the new covenant equivalent of the sacrificial meals of the old covenant. The difference being that the bread and wine representing Jesus' body and blood now replace the animal sacrifice. These sacrificial meals were not observed once a year. Thus Paul speaks not of an annual celebration of the Lord's Supper, but one occurring, quote, as often as you drink it, as often as you eat this bread. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 and 26. The Lord's Supper was instituted at the time of the Jewish Passover but is itself a new ordinance to remind us often of the death of Christ and his risen presence with the believers until he comes again. The Jewish Passover is fulfilled in Christ. I quote, Christ is our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, that's to say permanently, not just once a year. The Lord's Supper is instituted to mark the new events of the new covenant and is a, quote, fulfillment of several different Old Testament shadows. It is also a preview of the banquet to be celebrated in the coming kingdom. The wine symbolizes Jesus' blood shed to ratify the covenant, which grants kingship, the ability to rule with Jesus as kings, assigned to believers in Jesus' future world government, the heart of the gospel. Luke 22, verses 20 and verses 28 to 30. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. The Lord's Supper was to be kept when you come together as a church. 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, 18, and 20. Paul was intending to visit the Corinthians within a year, yet he found it necessary to deal immediately with the problems of their ongoing weekly celebration of the community meal, which included the drinking of wine as a symbol of the blood of Christ and eating bread to commemorate his death. The entire supper looked forward also to the messianic banquet to be celebrated at the return of Jesus in glory to establish the kingdom of God on a renewed earth. Meeting on Sunday. The notion that Sunday became important to believers only after Constantine declared it an unofficial day in the Roman Empire is untrue to the facts of history. We have very early evidence, other than Acts 20 verse 7, compared with that 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, that Christians met on Sunday for worship. This was not as a practice enjoined by any law, but as appropriate to the great event of the resurrection. It is apostolic custom, not a transference of the Saturday Sabbath to Sunday. As one historian writes, quote, the Saviour and the Apostles did not make fixed rules as to the observance of days, nor did the Gospels and Apostles threaten us with any penalty, punishment, or curse for the neglect of them, that's to say the fixed days, as the Mosaic law does the Jews. The aim of the Apostles was not to appoint festival days but to teach a righteous life and piety. That's a quotation from Socrates' Historia Ecclesiastica, written in 1917. The observance of Sunday as the day of resurrection is powerful confirmation of the New Testament evidence. In the early 2nd century, Barnabas, chapter 15, verse 9, writes, quote, We keep the eighth day for rejoicing, in the which Jesus also rose from the dead and having been manifested, ascended into the heavens. Barnabas also speaks of the eighth day as, quote, the beginning of another world. This is fully in keeping with Jesus being the first fruit of the harvest. And we should not forget that the first fruit was offered on Sunday, Leviticus 23 verse 11 as a type of Jesus resurrection on that day according to 1st Corinthians 15 verse 23 Christ became the first fruit through his resurrection how appropriate then that this resurrection occurred on the day Sunday typified by the Old Testament shadow the Sunday on which the wave sheaf was offered the one Sunday prescribed by the law as a shadow or type has now been superseded since Christ's resurrection has now happened. Ignatius in the early 2nd century speaks of believers no longer observing Sabbaths but fashioning their lives after the Lord's Day. That's in Ignatius's letter to the Magnesians. Justin Martyr, around 150 AD, describes Christian meetings on, quote, the day called Sunday for the observance of the Lord's Supper by all who live in cities or in the country. That's a quotation from Justin's Apology. This early practice does not, of course, validate everything which was taught by Christians in the centuries after Christ, nor does it mean that there was not a gradual and early paganization of the faith from the second century, culminating in a fuller apostasy under Constantine. But it cannot be said that Constantine is responsible for Sunday observance. Sabbath keepers should not be shy of examining Luke's reference to a Sunday meeting in Acts 20 verse 7, nor the New Testament practice of saving money for a collection every Sunday, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. 
There's no biblical text which reports that the church, as distinct from the synagogue, met on Saturday for worship. Acts 20 verse 7 testifies to a Sunday church meeting and it's remarkable that Paul was in Troas for seven days but waited until Sunday before meeting with the believers. Acts 20 verses 6 and 7. Why was there no church service on the Sabbath? 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 may well be a reference to a regular first day meeting. As the NIV study note notes, contributions were, quote, probably collected at the worship service, not at home, as implied by some translations. Summary. The sabbatical system was given to Israel under the law. God himself had rested on the seventh day, and it was this model which gave a basis for the Sabbath-keeping later ordained for Israel in Exodus 16. It was not that God instituted the Sabbath at creation for all mankind. It was rather that in Exodus 16, he revealed a new institution for Israel and connected this Sabbath with his earlier rest at creation. Hence, Exodus 20, verse 11 reads, I quote, For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day, not at that time called the Sabbath. Consequently now, so the Hebrew al-chen therefore may be rendered, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Jesus said that, quote, the Sabbath was made for man, Mark 2, verse 27. But the man in question refers to Israel, of whom it was also said that they rebelled against me, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which, if a man, an Israelite, observes them, he will live. Ezekiel 20, verse 21. The, quote, man here refers to Israel, to whom God's law was given, not to mankind. The words of Paul in Colossians 2, 16 and 17 inform us that the New Testament Sabbath consists of a permanent rest in Christ, who is the substance of the Old Covenant shadows found in the holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths. The Sabbath-keeping community cannot agree among themselves as to how to explain these verses in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, but they do avoid the plain meaning. Some insist, as Ellen G. White, founder of Seventh-day Adventism, did, that Paul must have excluded the weekly Sabbath from this trio of observances. But this trio is found in Ezekiel 45, verse 17, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, Nehemiah 10, verse 33, Sabbath, new moons, appointed times, 1 Chronicles 23, verse 31, Sabbath, new moons, holy days, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 4, Sabbath, new moons, and appointed feasts, 2 Chronicles 8, verse 13, Sabbath, new moons, and thrice yearly festivals, Hosea 2, verse 11, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, Colossians 2, 16, festivals, New Moon's Sabbath. See also 2 Kings 4, verse 23, Ezekiel 46, verse 1, Amos 8, verse 5. The whole system stands or falls together. Samuela Bacchiocchi appears to evade the plain sense of Colossians 2, 16 and 17 by suggesting that Paul is against ascetic practices connected with the Sabbath, and not the Sabbath itself. But can an ascetic practice be shadows of things to come? It is the observances which are shadows found in the law. Compare with that Hebrews 10 verse 1. These are now unimportant for Christians. As Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 23, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was about to be revealed. 
He uses the same language when he insists that Sabbaths, new moons, and holy days are, quote, shadows of things about to be. Colossians 2, verse 17. Since Christ has come as the substance of those shadows, it is unnecessary for Christians to insist on the shadow. But if they do, consistency demands the observance of the Sabbath, holy days, and new moons. There's a freedom in Christ which Christians can enjoy and pass on to others. A rigid holding on to the Old Testament festivals hampers the spirit of Christ and the gospel. We are no longer under the law, Romans 6, verse 14. We've been released from the law, Romans 7, verse 6. We have died to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God, Romans 7, verse 4. To those who, quote, desire to be under the law, Galatians 4.21, we recommend the important words of Paul in Galatians 4.21-31. The Mount Sinai covenant leads to bondage. For the children of the promise, there's a new and glorious liberty in Christ. There's a new covenant in the Spirit. The old covenant with its legal system has been replaced by something better. Hebrews 8, verse 13. We are not, quote, under obligation to observe the whole law. Galatians 5, verse 3. If we attempt to do so, we have, quote, fallen from grace. Galatians 5, verse 4. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the custodianship of the law. Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25. Those who insist on the law in its old form risk belonging to the covenant from Mount Sinai. Galatians 4, verse 24. Children of the covenant of law cannot be heirs with the sons of the free woman. Galatians 4, verse 30. Those who cling to the Sinai legal system are not good candidates for the kingdom of God. Surely it's clear that all types of Old Covenant rest days are no longer binding on those who seek to rest in Christ, ceasing from their own works daily. Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10. In the words of a 16th century theologian, the Sabbath means, quote, that I cease from all my evil works all the days of my life. I allow the Lord to work in me through his Spirit and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. That is from Zacharias Ursinus in the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Our purpose has been to suggest that a number of popular misunderstandings underlie the tenacious conviction of many that God's law expects them to cease from labor for a 24-hour period, Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. This doctrine was not learned from the apostles, who lay no such obligation on any follower of Jesus. Indeed, Paul, we believe, would be disturbed that Gentiles in the 21st century still allow themselves to become obligated to Sabbath-keeping as essential for salvation. If the Gentile Christians had been required at conversion to rest on the Sabbath day, this would have needed specific directions from the Acts 15 Council, which decided how far a Gentile believer was obligated to follow the practices of Judaism. Sabbath-keeping, according to the apostolic decision, is not a requirement for Gentile believers. We should remember that Gentiles had been permitted to attend at the synagogues of the Jews, but the latter did not instruct them to become Sabbath-keepers. Only those who became full proselytes to Judaism adopted Sabbath observance. The Jews themselves knew that God had given them the Sabbath, and did not expect Sabbath-keeping of other nations. 
Thus it would have required a special ordinance for Gentiles if Sabbath-keeping were necessary for them as Christians. Paul later confirmed the council's ruling in Romans 14, verse 5, where the observance of days is a matter of conscience. There's no question of obligatory Sabbath-keeping. The argument that Paul is dealing with special fast days breaks down because the issue concerning food in verses 1 to 4 has to do with habitual vegetarianism, not periodic abstinence by fasting. Verse 5, there's a change of subject. One man, quote, regards every day alike. This is not true of fasting. Paul did not say one man regards any day as suitable for fasting. The reference is to non-observance of certain days. Where did you learn Sabbath-keeping? Many of us who have been Sabbath-keepers learned this practice from those who had been schooled in a particular way of thinking about the law. We were not exposed, however, to the writings of men who have given a lifetime of study to the letters of Paul and may well have caught the spirit of his writings better than the Sabbath-keeping community. The Dutch theologian Redobos, whom every serious student of Paul should read, his book is called Paul, an Outline of His Theology, noted that Paul did not consider himself to be under the law, but bound by the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 I quote, The law no longer has unrestricted and undifferentiated validity for the Church of Christ. In a certain sense, the Church can be qualified as, quote, without the law. The law of God is not thereby abrogated. This continuing significance of the law can be qualified as being bound by the law of Christ. That the law in its particularistic significance as making a division between Jews and Gentiles is no longer in force constitutes the foundation of Paul's apostolate among the Gentiles. He speaks of it as, quote, the law of commandments contained in ordinances and as, quote, the middle wall of partition. This law has been pulled down and rendered inoperative. Ephesians 2, 14 and following, compared with this Galatians 2, verse 14, Galatians 4, verse 10, Galatians 5, 2 and following, Galatians 6, 12, Colossians 2, 16 and following, and Colossians 3, verse 11. Also Romans 2, verse 26 and following, Romans 3, 30, and chapter 4 of Romans, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 18 and 19. This holds above all for circumcision, but in general for living like a Jew, Galatians 2, 14, as a description of those regulations which had the effect of maintaining the line of demarcation between Israel and the Gentiles in a ritual, cultic, and social respect. In Colossians 2, 16 and following, with regard to the keeping of dietary regulations, feasts, new moons, or Sabbath days, we find the typical expression, which are shadows of things to come, but the body is Christ's. All these prescriptions are but provisional and unreal, as a shadow exhibits only the dim contours of the body itself. Herein is the important viewpoint that with Christ's advent, the law, also as far as its content is concerned, has been brought under a new norm of judgment and that failure to appreciate this new situation is a denial of Christ. Galatians 5 verse 2 from Redobos. There can thus be no doubt, whatever, that the category of the law has not been abrogated with Christ's advent, but rather has been maintained and interpreted 
in its radical sense, as to say fulfilled, as in Matthew 5, verse 17. On the other hand, that the church no longer has to do with the law in any other way than in Christ, and thus is within the law of Christ, or the law of Messiah. End of quotation from Ridobos in his book, Paul, an outline of his theology, written in 1977. The observance of the Saturday Sabbath, new moons or holy days, can at best be no more than a private act of devotion based on personal tradition. It cannot claim to attract from God any special approval. Indeed, it runs contrary to the express teaching of Paul that freedom of spirit in Christ lifts one above the temporary provisions of the law, which is now summed up as, quote, love in the spirit. The old covenant should not be mixed with the new, nor should it be thought that one forgets that God is the creator if one fails to rest on Saturday. The new creation in Christ and his resurrection on Sunday lead appropriately to a weekly memorial of that resurrection. See Acts 20 verse 7 and commentaries on that passage. That resurrection in which we hope to participate at Christ's return. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23. Nor should believers restrict the observance of the Lord's Supper to an annual occasion. Churches founded by Paul did not follow the practice of groups coming under the influence of Herbert Armstrong. Paul's converts observed the Lord's Supper when they met together as a church. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 8 and 20. Clearly, this was more than once a year. According to Nehemiah 9, verse 13 and 14, and chapter 10, verses 29 to 33, the Sabbath is part of the law of Moses. The law of Moses is expressly not required to be observed for salvation under the terms of the new covenant inaugurated by the death of Jesus. This was precisely the issue at Antioch and Jerusalem, where believing Pharisees, quote, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Acts 15, verses 1 and 5. This does not concern just the offering of sacrifices, since there was no temple in Antioch. The attempt to bring believers under the law of Moses is described as a disturbance which troubled the minds of the converts to Christianity. Acts 15, verse 24. Obeying God and His Son. What then is obedience? It is adherence to the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, which Paul distinguishes from Old Covenant law. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. Salvation is indeed granted to those who obey the Son. Hebrews 5 verse 9. Sin is not exactly transgression of the law, but as the Greek says, lawlessness. But what is lawlessness? It is failure to respond in obedience to the law of Christ. His Christian New Covenant law appears throughout the New Testament in the writings of those who were divinely commissioned to record his teachings and who learned to obey him through his Spirit. A continuing progressive revelation of the law of Christ was given by the risen Jesus to the New Testament church. But we should never forget that the teaching and preaching of Jesus in his historical ministry on earth are the rock foundation of the new covenant. It is utterly false, for example, to maintain that the gospel of the kingdom of God, which Jesus always preached, was in any way suspended after the crucifixion. Paul did not change the foundation of the gospel, the gospel about the kingdom of God. He insisted with all the apostles that the words and teachings of Jesus 
were the basis of all he taught as the faith. You'll find that in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, 2 John 9, and compare with that Hebrews 2, verse 3, which describes the beginning of the gospel as being in the words of Jesus. Also note John 6.63, which says, The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If Christians who insist on one day above another, Romans 14, verse 5, were to be equally exercised about obedience to Christ's great commandment to, quote, go into all nations and make disciples and teach them everything that I, not Moses, taught you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, then the focus of obedience would be truly biblical. What, after all, is the first commandment, according to Jesus? He opened his ministry with a direct order to his followers. It was and is to, quote, repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom of God. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. This is Mark's programmatic summary of all that Jesus stood for. The New Testament is really an expansion of these initial words of Jesus as he announced the saving gospel of the kingdom. And a second commandment of Jesus is likewise, quote, leave the dead to bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, Luke 9, verse 60. Jesus also commanded that we be baptized in water for the remission of sins once we have grasped the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8, verse 12. Compare with that Matthew 28, verse 19. Acts 2, verse 38. Acts 10, verse 48. And Acts 22, verse 16. More time would be available for obedience to these laws of Christ if Bible students were to cease wrangling and dividing over exactly what may or may not be done on Saturday or precisely which day a given Old Testament festival should begin. If Saturday Sabbath keeping is not required by Jesus, then believers should be most anxious lest they distort the faith and present a false impression of Christianity to those who desire to know what it means to follow Christ. Should we agree that Sabbath-keeping was given to national Israel, its enforcement on Gentiles who are not under the law but under grace would seem to be a tragic dividing of the faith and an added confusion in an already fragmented church. The seriousness of the issue is this. What image of Christianity are we or our church group presenting to the unconverted world? If adherence to what many see as the Jewish Sabbath is part of what we offer the world as obedience to Jesus, are we perhaps creating an unnecessary barrier, even a stumbling block, between ourselves and the unbelievers? Could Sabbath-keeping be perhaps only a sign of elitism, comforting to those who believe in it, but detrimental to a clear witness to what it means to be a Christian under grace, which certainly does not mean license to do anything we choose? All are agreed that obedience to the word of the Messiah is the essential basis of true faith. Matthew 13, 19, Colossians 3, 16, Romans 10, verse 17, John 12, verse 48, 2 John 7 to 9, and 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Sin is the transgression of Messiah's instructions. Sabbaths and holy days are shadows and cannot be compared with the rest or sabbatism in Christ cessation from our own works continuously, as Hebrews 4 verse 10 commands. This sabbatism 
in Hebrews 4.9, remains for all the people of God who desire to enter ultimate rest in the future kingdom of God. A persistence in legalism, contrary to the expressed teachings of Paul about freedom from law, will not lead to rest, either now or in the kingdom. The integrity of the gospel is at stake in this important issue. For further study, we might recommend from Sabbath to Lord's Day a biblical, historical, and theological investigation by D.A. Carson, written in 1982.